I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. Now imagine, after years of dreaming and working hard, you finally make that coveted Olympic team. But then just two weeks before the Olympics begin, you crash, breaking both feet and are forced to watch the Olympics that you qualified for from the sidelines in a wheelchair. That was the start of Emily Cook's Olympic experience. It took her three long years to come back from that injury, but that comeback paved the road to her making the next three Olympic Games. In this episode, Emily tells us about that devastating crash, the long journey back, an epic World Cup victory, and all that she learned along the way. We talk about trust and fear, choosing to move forward, and the four stages of what gets the job done. Emily doesn't just have an incredibly inspiring story. She provides great resources, tips, and tricks to take your game to the next level. But before we jump into this episode, I want to tell you about my new book, Life at 10 Meters, Lessons from an Olympic Champion. It's not an autobiography, but rather some important lessons that I've learned from my diving days. It's a quick read, but it's packed with powerful messages that are relatable both in sports and life. From tweens to adults, everyone will benefit from this read. I'd even encourage parents to read it with your kids as it'll provide great discussions on how you can face and overcome the challenges in your life. If you'd like an autographed copy, just head on over to laurawilkinson.com slash book and make sure to fill out the box telling me who you'd like me to sign it for. That's laurawilkinson.com slash book. Or you can grab your copy of Life at 10 Meters on Amazon in paperback or ebook. Just search for Life at 10 Meters in the Amazon search bar, or you can click the direct link in our show notes. If you've been enjoying the Pursuit of Gold podcast, be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening so you don't miss an episode and give us a five-star rating and review. And if you're loving the show, please make sure you're sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. They're going to love it. They'll love you for it. And I'll be very grateful. All right. I believe that there's gold in your future. So let's dive on into this episode. Emily Cook, welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. I'm so excited to finally dig into your story today. After a few logistical bumps, we've got you on. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks, Laura. Please tell our audience why there were some logistic challenges because you have somebody who we might hear in the background in a little bit. Yes, absolutely. Life has um, changed a little bit in the last few months. Uh, We welcomed Charlie into the world uh, about four months ago. So Charlie is our son and he is so much fun. So he's hanging in the background with his dad and his grandpa. And um, yeah, he may say hi at some point because that's (laughs) what life working from home is like these days. Exactly. Oh my God. So I have to ask you before we get started, um, how does motherhood so far compare to being an Olympian? Like the the training and the the day in, day out, the exhaustion, like like compare the two. Oh my gosh, it's totally different. It's the best thing I've ever experienced. You know, I mean, we've had so many incredible experiences as athletes and I'm completely blown away by how amazing being a mother is. Um, It's also incredibly challenging, just like being an athlete as well. There's a lot of parallels for sure. The exhaustion, especially at the beginning, was (laughs) mind-blowing. 
but he's, he's starting to sleep through the night and, uh, you know, we just, um, I mean, we're just so thankful for him. It, it's wonderful. It's an uh, incredible experience. That's so awesome. Well, congratulations. I'm so excited for you guys. Uh, yeah, I've got, I've got four not so little ones anymore. They're growing big, <laughs> but yeah, it's just every time it just blows you away how amazing it is and watching him grow and change. So yeah, I'm super excited for you. Well, how cool for you too, being able to have them at the Olympic trials and watching you go through the last, you know, a few months of your life. That's amazing. I, I was watching and just absolutely admiring that. I thought it was so cool. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I don't know how much of it has really sunk in for them yet, but I'm hoping as they're older, like maybe they'll take some lessons that they learn watching this process. So hopefully just planted some good seeds, you know? Absolutely. I'm sure you did. Well, Emily, I have been following you for a long time uh, because you're an aerial skier. And to me, that is like the most relatable winter Olympic sport compared to diving because, you know, you're doing all the acrobatics in the air. So I know you didn't just start as an aerial skier, like walk us through kind of how you got into sports and how it led into aerial skiing. Absolutely. So um, I was raised by my dad. Uh, My mom actually passed away when I was very young. So I was raised by my dad and I was kind of a, a wild child. I was, you know, I was, had a lot of energy. And so my dad put me in gymnastics really early and he loved to ski. And so he taught me to ski as well. And as I grew up, it, it just was obvious that I loved both sports so much. So somebody noticed and recruited me into aerial skiing. And so when I was about 12 years old, I went to Lake Placid, New York, and I took my first uh, flips on skis into the water. So we actually train into the water similar to diving, but with skis on uh, off of a, a ramp with plastic on it so that we can ski on it in the summer. And I just loved it. I thought it was so much fun. And so I decided to start focusing my energy on that. And, you know, I still dabbled a bit in gymnastics and obviously loved skiing every day, but really started focusing on gymna- on aerials at that time and decided I wanted to go to the Olympics right around when I was 12 years old. And, uh, you know, throughout my, throughout my career, when I was younger, I was able to do other sports, which I loved. I ran track and played some soccer and, um, did some diving as well, though platform I found (laughs) terrifying. So kudos to you. Wait, 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 wait wait a minute. Wait a minute. Back this up. How high are you going off the ramp into an aerial flip and landing compared to the platform? I think you're going higher than a 10 meter platform. (laughs) I, you know, I think so, but you're not standing on the edge of it. (laughs) You start a lot lower. I don't know, but like you, you have to land on solid ground. Like I, how is that scarier? I have no idea. You know, I think it's just, we, we get used to and we train and we get prepared for the things that, you know, that we're training for obviously. Right. So for me, just starting platform, it was in, it was in high school that I, I, you know, I just, I just played around with it a little bit, but I, I did love diving. I dove through high school. Um, but once I got to three meter and, uh, then platform, oh my gosh, I just, you guys are amazing. And the interesting thing too, is that right now up at the Utah Olympic park in park city, Utah, which is where I'm calling from, they have that new, um, diving facility. Have you seen it? Yes. Yes. This has been really, really cool. Um, Ellie smart set that up and it has been so awesome. So they've set up scaffolding platforms, like all the way from like, it's got the lower three, five, seven, ten, all the way up to 27 meters, which is what the high divers on the world circuit do and the Red Bull world series do. 
and they're having like summer camps and training sessions. And there's nothing like that in the States. They're building one in like a permanent one in Fort Lauderdale, but this is kind of the first one in the States. So it's everybody's gravitating there, flocking there. It's really amazing. But I saw, because I was looking at all the videos and pictures of it, they've got the sparger system under the pool where like the, all the bubbles come up because that's what the aerial skiers use as well. Because it, it goes, it's like the, the platforms are on one side and the aerial skiing areas like right next to it, right? Like on the side. It is so cool. It's so yeah. cool. I mean, so they're training side by side now, which is, I think it's just such a cool perspective to see, you know, to see the athletes and see, you know, what different twisting techniques they use and see how high that platform is. Oh my gosh. And then, you know, how high the aerialists are going. So it's super fun. I'm, I'm loving that. I wish that had been there when I was training, but it's, it's really cool to see. Are you going to go walk up to the top? You got to check it out. <laughs> yes, definitely. Definitely. And I guarantee you, I'm not jumping off that thing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't think I would either. So I don't blame you. <laughs> But I have to, I have to tell you, it's just an acrobatic geek out moment. Like when I watch aerial skiers, the way you guys drop your arms into your twisters reminds me kind of of trampoline. Like, do you guys do a lot of trampoline twisting? Because diving and gymnastics seem more similar where trampoline and aerial skiing seem more similar to me. Yeah, absolutely. So we did quite a bit of when I was when I was coming up, we did a lot of trampoline training. We actually trained quite a bit um, at Skyriders in Toronto. So we we spent a little time around trampolinists and and spent some time learning how they twist and implementing that into what we do. Some people, however, still do a diver's twist as well. In fact, our team is transitioning a little bit more into that, especially really? when, on their double in. So when they're when they're doing a double twist on the first flip, they're doing a lot of the diver twist, and then you know, kind of integrating all of them together. If that if that makes sense, but the twisting mechanics are really interesting to to study and to practice and learn, and it's it's very cool. So yes, we definitely do a lot of a lot of tilt twisting, but. Um, we now have a Russian head coach on the aerial team and they do a lot more diver twist. Um, and so we're integrating that in there as well now, which is cool to see. This is so, this is so neat. Like I love just geeking out on the acrobatic side of it, but like, do <laughs> you too. guys, do you guys also, cause in diving, we call it spotting where, you know, you, you use your visual cues. You're like, we spot the water in each somersault. So we know where we are, where to kick, um, you know, to land on our head. Do you guys do similar? <laughs> yeah. Do you spot like the snow under you or the ramp or what, what do you look at? Yeah, we look at either the water if we're jumping on water or um, the snow if we're jumping on snow. And so you'll notice, um, well, the bubbles help us see the water so that you don't just see straight down to the bottom, which I'm sure you guys have a similar yeah. have a similar system. But then on snow, you'll notice that there's uh, there's color in the landing hill. And usually it just makes, you know, it just looks like dirty snow, but it's actually intentional. <laughs> um, you know, so they're generally throwing pine boughs or if they need to use paint, if there's no, you know, pine trees around, they'll use paint. But so that you can look at the look at the snow. And it's something that we train a lot is vision um, because, you know, for some reason it doesn't come naturally. I'm sure in diving, it's a similar thing. It's something we train a lot is looking at the ground. But but it's like you have, I mean, it's so important because to be safe and to land. I mean, like I still get over it. Like you guys are probably going like, what is your height when you actually go? Do you know where you kind of peak out at the top? Yeah. If you're going from your landing spot to, to kind of the apex of the jump triples are about 60 feet and doubles, which is what I did. I did a triple twisting double is kind of my like pinnacle trick. That's closer to 40, 45 feet. Uh, so yeah, it's pretty high. Wow. <laughs> and then you're landing on like an incline so that you can ski out of it. I mean, 
how is that not scare them? <laughs> I don't understand this. You're, you're a whole other level of crazy. <laughs> In hindsight, yes, absolutely. In hindsight, I think it's completely crazy and totally scary. Yeah, we land on a 36 degree landing hill, at least 36 degrees. So it's, you know, steeper than a black diamond if you're a skier. But, you know, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, I'm sure like, I, I want to ask you questions. I know this is your podcast, but like managing that fear and using it in a positive way is something that I spent a lot of years training, especially after an injury or, you know, after a, a tough jump or something like that, you know, it's, it's so important to be able to get your mindset in the right place and be able to think really technically rather than, rather than have that fear dominate you, obviously. So I'm sure that that's something that you've had to manage as well. But, you know, I've worked with a sports psychologist for years to, to kind of get to that point where I could. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely big in my sport as well, but, but walk me through some of that. I mean, and this is a huge factor in in a lot of acrobatic sports, especially, but in in all sports, I'm sure to some extent, but yeah, walk me through how the sports psychologists help you. And, and you, you mentioned focusing on technical stuff instead of everything else, but kind of walk me through what that actually looks like. Yeah, it took it took a lot of imagery. So I had a, a big injury um, around 2002, which we can talk about at some point. But coming back from that was was a big challenge, uh, and it took me actually three years to get back to jumping on snow. And throughout that three years, I spent a lot of time at the jumps. So I was coaching a little bit, and I was just hanging around my teammates. I was helping out with video, and you know, just listening to my coaches coach my teammates and just learning as much as I could during that process. But a big thing that came into play was imagery, which I know is used in so many different sports, but there's a couple different ways that, that I did it. And one of them that I thought was really helpful was I did some imagery scripts. So I wrote down uh, for my sports psychologist exactly what I wanted to be doing on every trick. So I would go from my easiest tricks up until, you know, my hardest jumps and ones that I hadn't even performed yet. And what we did was we, in, in my own words, we uh, recorded exactly what I wanted to be doing, you know, down to what I could feel when I was standing on the in run, what I could hear, what I could smell. And, you know, you know, down to the, you know, at some events, there's a generator going and you can smell the generator or, wow. you know, the pine bough or, and then, you know, going through the technical aspects of, of every jump. So from my hop turn to where I was looking as I was skiing down the in run to all of the technical little pieces, um, you know, arm drops, you talked about the, the kind of twisting that we do, you know, where those arm drops had to be, where my vision had to be on the landing hill, you know, down to landing that perfect jump and skiing away. And then we also recorded a few where the conditions weren't perfect in an outdoor sport. We deal with wind, we deal with snow, you know, obviously you deal with a crowd in every sport. So adding those factors in as well and being able to focus through those things in my mind. And then once I came back to jumping three years later, I actually came back technically better than where I started. You know, it, it definitely took some training as well to implement that, but, um, you know, right away, rather than you know, putting out fires and fixing things that I wasn't doing well, I kind of started from scratch and was able to build towards exactly how I wanted each jump to be rather than, you know, trying to eliminate old bad habits, if that makes sense. So that was one of the things that we did. And then, you know, of course, coming back from an injury that took you out for three years, there's a lot of fear involved in that as well. So we, we talked through a lot of what we called negative thought stoppers. So, you know, for example, if I was on the hill and I was experiencing some pain uh, from my injury, which happened for a long time, and with that pain creeped in, you know, either some anxiety or some fear, 
I trained myself to be able to replace that thought with another thought because your brain can only keep one thing in your mind at, at a time, right? So sometimes I would picture a red balloon uh, blowing up and I would pop it. And then that would kind of trigger me to think of something else. Other times I would implement something physical if if that didn't work, you know, whether it was a clap or something like that. So I always determined before a, a training block, whether it was a three-week training block or something, what my what my negative thought stoppers would be and, you know, exactly what mindset I wanted to be in on the hill. Um, I use music a lot as well. So if if I was too mellow, I could use music to bring myself back up. If I was, you know, anxious or nervous, I could use music to kind of bring that anxiety back down. So those are a couple of the things that that I was able to do going into, um, you know, 2006 was the first games that I was able to participate in. Oh my goodness. I love that. And I, I will probably dig more into that as we like walk through your story. But you did bring up your injury in 2002. I mean, that was your first big shot at the Olympics and you made the Olympic team, right? Yeah. 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 So I made my first Olympic team in 2002, which, you know, as I said earlier, when I was 12, I said I wanted to make the Olympics in 2002. So this was, you know, 10 years in the making. And I mean, you know, that feeling, that feeling of, of qualifying for your first Olympic team is just the, the most amazing feeling in the world. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it's just the best. So I got the chance to do that. Um, the event was our Olympic qualifier. It was on our Olympic site since the, the Olympics would be in Salt Lake City in 2002. And I was just like over the moon excited, um, you know, to be able to compete at home. I was living in Utah at that time and have all of my friends and family out there cheering me on. It was the best. And then once you qualify for the Olympics, you have to keep going, right? You keep training right. and you keep going to competitions. And yeah. How, how long, how long from like when you qualified to when the Olympics were supposed to start? So the event was on New Year's Eve. So it was, you know, January 1st and then opening ceremonies were, let's see, February, like right in February. So it was, it was a pretty short time. It was less than a month gotcha. um, till we were, you know, traveling over to the games. So during that time, we, you know, we kept going and we went to more competitions. We went to Lake Placid, which is where I started jumping. And uh, we had a World Cup there. And it was not great weather and snow and wind that'll slow down your speed and it'll affect your jump. So I went into the jump and I knew I was a little bit slow, but I had trained myself to, you know, to commit to a jump when I've, when I've hop turned and started down the in run. And so I went up in the air and you know, just like diving, we're actually allowed to give calls during competition as well. Uh, this was training, but so I, I heard everybody on the knoll or, you know, where the coaches stand, you know, coaches from the U.S., coaches from Australia, coaches from Canada, et cetera, all saying pull. So, you know, in diving, you know what pull means, right? You make your body as small as possible and, and try to flip faster. And I did land right on my feet. I was too slow you know, I was flipping too slow and I was, uh, and I was too low to the ground and I landed right on my feet, but I landed on the flat part of the hill. And when I landed, I shattered both feet. Um, oh. so had dislocations and fractures and torn ligaments. And, um, as much as I said, I'm competing in a few weeks, as much as I was sure I was, I was going to, you know, get through it and be able to compete. It was not the case. I had to go back to Salt Lake city instead and have surgery and, I ended up watching the 2002 games um, from the stands uh, in a wheelchair with both with both feet broken. So it was not the games that I expected, um, but it was an incredible experience anyway. So, you know, I had a, a teammate take my place and it was I got to watch and cheer and be a part of it in a really different way than I expected. 
I mean, I can't even imagine like how many emotions were you experiencing at that time? So many, you know, I mean, it, it was an interesting time in our world as well, because 9-11 had just happened. And, you know, I have one of my most vivid, most painful and also most motivating memories was watching the the flag from the World Trade Center, you know, come in the stadium. And so there was a number of athletes that carried the 9-11 flag that was, you know, hanging over the World Trade Center into the opening ceremony stadium. And you know, I remember watching that happen. And I remember just being crying, but also just being so committed and so positive that I would come back and get the chance to represent my country in the next games. And it was sad and it was hard. And it was also, you know, in my mind, there was nothing that was going to get in the way of coming back and getting the chance to compete in the next games. Awesome. So right from the beginning, you were like, this sucks, but I am yep. done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you know, it was, it was cool. I got to, I got to see, you know, where, where those big support factors were for me, right? Right away, but also, you know, through the next three years. So my family was incredibly supportive. My coaches were beyond supportive. And I'm so thankful for that. And my teammates, my teammates were amazing. You know, they stood by my side through, you know, the 2002 games and then all three years that I wasn't competing. And then when I came back, they were there too. And it was, it was a really amazing thing to go through that year of coming back, getting ready for Torino and doing that with my teammates, you know. I had talked to them throughout this whole thing and they knew how committed I was to it. So anytime that I wasn't showing that, you know, if I was scared or if I was, you know, off a little bit on a certain day, which I was at the next Olympic trials a little bit, you know, they were there to call me on it and to get me back to my center, get me back to where I needed to be to compete the way I wanted to and to, you know, remember that I was thankful to be back competing, which right. I loved hearing you talk about at the last Olympic Games as well, or the last Olympic trials as well of like, it's just so cool to be here. I love my sport so much and I get to share this with the people around me. So that was something that I really recognized at the 2006 Olympic trials as well. That's cool. It is good to have people who can kind of help you refocus and like make sure you're thinking about the right things and, get, and gaining a good perspective if you're getting too caught up in something. They can pull you back and be like, hey, wait a minute. Kind of like you said, like you're do. here. Yes. Oh, anytime you're shooting for something huge, it's so easy to get caught up in that train. So yeah, you got to have the people around you, the good people. And Okay. And I, and I have a question on how this happened because you said somebody replaced you and I, I read that it was Jarrett, Jarrett Speedy Peterson. Yeah. How though, but he's on the men's team. Like how did a guy replace your spot? Well, our Olympic selection is, it's not just for aerials. So we have a certain amount of spots for aerials that are shared between, let's see, we have slope style, half pipe, skier cross, moguls, aerials, and what will now be big air, um, which is a you know new sport to the game since I was competing. And so we share a number of spots. Um, it was 36 at the last games, I believe. Oh. And they're just dispersed across all of those sports. So wow, when I we're competing, know I know, isn't it crazy? So when we're competing for our Olympic spot, we're competing against all of those different disciplines as well, which they all, they call, they lump into freestyle skiing. And so um, what happened is when I was unable to, to compete myself, the next person in line, he just happened to be male, not female, and also happened to be a very good friend as well. So, so Jarrett uh, Speedy Peterson took my spot and he was just such a good friend throughout the whole games and throughout my recovery as well. I mean, he's, 
he was an incredible person. Um, you know, those who are, are close to aerials or winter sport um, know that he went on to uh, win an Olympic silver medal in Vancouver. And then shortly after that, he, he took his life. You know, he battled depression for uh, the majority of his of his life. And sadly, um, those those demons won about a year and a half after after he won his silver medal. So he's no longer here with us. But, um, you know, we love him. We miss him. It's been almost 10 years since he passed away. And, you know, in his honor, we created the Speedy Foundation, which um, it provides resources for mental health and mental health first aid courses, which is super important because uh, those of us around him, we had a really hard time you know, knowing exactly what to do when he would reach out uh, when he wasn't doing well. And so, you know, we now, um, I was on the board of that foundation for a while and uh, the Speedy Foundation trains people to know what to do when someone is in crisis. So super important foundation and, and one that I'm I'm very close to and love very much. That's yeah, that's absolutely awesome. We will make sure to link to that in the show notes if anybody needs to access that resource. That is incredible and super important. Um, I know they. Uh, I think it was it on HBO the the documentary that came out recently, The Weight of Gold, that Michael Phelps did, and they talked about him a little bit. And um, yeah, I just think it's super important because athletes, you know, we're people too, and we go through all these things too. And sometimes it gets magnified because the intensity of what we're doing and the public spotlight that it can be put in. So. Yeah, make sure you guys check out the Speedy Foundation. We will link to that in the show notes. Um, Thank you. Yeah. And so, okay, tell me, it took you three years, you said, coming back from this massive injury and having to watch the 2002 games in your own city from a wheelchair. I, I mean, what was that? come back like because you're like I'm coming back <laughs> you know but but it took you <laughs> you said three years just to get back on the snow yes three years three, what? two and a half years to back to water which was scary and wonderful <laughs> was it just that bad of an injury or like was was there constant issues or like like walk me through what what it was like well, so we got a year and a half into the recovery and, you know, I thought that was, I thought that was going to be it. I thought we were going to be good. And my left foot really just never healed the way it needed to. So the biggest problem is that, um, the, the bones in my foot were dislocated as well. And so resetting that was, was the biggest challenge. So, you know, if you can picture my hip and my knee being in alignment, my foot was angled about 45 degrees out. Oh, so, yeah. So putting that in a ski boot just, you know, really didn't work. So what we did a year and a half in, um, my doctor, who is amazing, um, I still talk with him to this day, Tim Beals in Park City, Utah, um, he did a fusion. And so they fused the bones in my foot and that took another year of recovery for that. So couple of surgeries later, um, two and a half years after the original injury, I was ready to go. And, you know, that process was, you know, it was scary, but it, what it took, you know, the biggest thing that it took was accepting that I could put all this work in and come back to my sport and the exact same thing could happen again. You know, being okay with that. Once I was like, well, all right, you know, I've had an awesome life for the last three years and you know, whether I make the Olympic team or not, I'm going to be proud of the effort that I put in, you know, I'm going to be proud of, you know, putting everything on the line and being, you know, a hundred percent committed to every training session, to every workout, to everything. And I'll be able to walk away proud of what I've done. And so once I was able to really accept that I could put in all that work and it could happen again, the anxiety around the potential of that happening disappeared. 
So I was able really? to be up there. And yes, I was sometimes still, you know, afraid of the trick or a weather, you know, a weather event or something like that. But I was able to take a deep breath and say, okay, are you committed to being here today? And the answer was always yes. And once that answer was yes, I was able to put it away. And, you know, it kind of was like, <laughs> as funny as it is, it was like robot mode, you know, like <laughs> yeah. I was able to put the emotions away and just focus on, on the technical pieces that I needed to do to one, stay safe, but also to perform well. I also, I, I made a choice and that choice was that once I chose to, to be out there on that day, and to be, you know, whether it was training or competing, I chose not to give myself the permission to decide whether something was safe or not, if that made sense. So I had this conversation with my coach and I said, look, I trust the training that I've done. And if you say, you know, you're ready for this trick, I completely trust you. And I'm going to, you know, almost like take that permission away from myself to make a choice, whether the weather's bad or whether it's a new trick or something like that, just so that I can be up there and completely focus on what I'm doing. So I trust that if I'm doing something that's beyond my my ability level or, you know, that the weather's not good enough for me to be able to compete safely. I trust that you're going to make that choice for me. So that was, um, it was a really challenging thing to do to give over that, you know, that permission to be scared almost and just be able to be up there and, and focus on the technical aspects that I needed. You know, I love this so much. I have like this little five-day fear challenge people can do on my website. And we talk about how like fear, like unless you face it directly and deal with it, it will always be there. It will always be there in the back of your head. You try to push it aside. It just makes it worse. It just makes it stick there even more. But when you face it like you did and you like deal with, okay, this could happen again, then you can actually move past it. And that's like, it's such a hard thing to do. But when you actually can do it the one time, it gets easier and easier. And you realize the power of that. I I love that you just hit this nail on the head. That is so, so good. And the permission, like giving that, first of all, trusting your coach, right? How many of us don't trust our coach? And you have to trust your coach and you have to be coachable. But when, especially when you're a little bit older, you know what I mean? And you, you know, you're, I mean, sometimes it's easier for a kid because you're used to trusting your parents or trusting, you know, whoever the authority, but when you're older, sometimes you're like, I'm going to make these decisions for myself. But to instead surrender that and be like, I am totally in your hands and I trust you. That is so cool that that freed you up and just allowed you to move forward. I think that is just so huge. I know divers for divers that I'm going to be talking to them about that. Be like, you need to go listen to Emily's podcast because this was amazing, amazing advice. I, I absolutely love that. Well, and it's not blind either, right? You don't just like go blindly trust someone, but you have the conversations that are needed in order to get to that point, right? So off of the hill, we would say, okay, you know, what are we comfortable with? We're comfortable with this amount of wind or we're comfortable up into, you know, up until this trick or, right? So you establish that before you get on the hill or before you, you know, walk up the stairs to the platform or the ladder to the platform or, you know, you establish that ahead of time so that once you're in the moment, you can just focus on what you need to focus on, right? So Ah, that's that my coach was so open to doing that and it made a huge difference. So, you know, standing in the gate, once I got to the gate, it was it was done, right? If I had any considerations, whether it was on the chairlift or you know prior to a training day, I would have that conversation. Hey, the weather's not perfect. I'm a little bit nervous. Let's talk about you know what the parameters are today, right? And then you get that out of the way before you're before you're actually in the situation where it can negatively affect you. 
Well, okay. So walk me through in this three years that, that it took you again to, to fully heal and fuse. And, and I, I have a two level cervical fusion. So my, I have um, mm-hmm. a nice titanium plate and six screws on my neck. So I understand it took me a year to, to come back and be on 10 meter again. So I completely understand that. Um, and, and the fear that goes with that too, and the risk. Um, but you're not just sitting around the whole time. Like, what are you doing? I, I, and obviously this is what you said when your visualization kicked in and all those things, like what else were you doing physically? Cause you couldn't use your feet. So like, how are you staying in shape? How are you trying to stay engaged with your sport? Yeah. I mean, physical therapy was tough for sure. I'm, I'm not going to lie. It was hard and it wasn't, it wasn't what I had like quote signed up for. Right. I mean, it's <laughs> it so easy is. to say like, yeah, no, it's so easy to say like, well, you have to love your sport. Right. Well, you do love your sport, but sometimes the part of your sport that you love is not what training is, right? <laughs> so, you know, there were a couple levels of, of when I, what I went through to get through that part, right? So I, I joke that like there was this one conversation I was having with a, a classroom of college students and one of the students said, how do you stay motivated every day? And I was in the middle of training and I was like, huh. I wasn't motivated this morning at all, actually. And so I had to think about it. And I was like, what did, okay, so I wasn't motivated at all this morning. What got me to training this morning? And so I I kind of evaluated that for myself. And I realized for me, there were kind of like four stages of what got the job done. So, you know, there's inspiration where like, I want to go to the Olympic Games, right? So 10 years before the 2002 Games, I said, I want to go to the Olympic Games. I was inspired. I had, you know, pictures of my favorite athletes on my bathroom mirror. So when I woke up, I was like, oh, I want to be that person. I want to get to the Olympics. I had Olympic rings everywhere. That inspiration piece, like that's awesome. And that works sometimes. (laughs) And then the motivation piece works sometimes. And then there's like two other steps to this that like really made a difference for me when things were hard. And one of them was just the straight up commitment. Like I'm going to show up because I said so. And, you know, again, just like not giving myself permission to not show up. You know, once you get there, it's a lot easier. Just that straight up commitment piece. And then every once in a while, like as humans, we're just not reliable. We're not reliable to our own commitments. We're not, you know, it's sometimes it just doesn't work. And so one of the things that that I was able to do over the over the years was train the people around me to relate to me as someone who showed up. And so if I didn't show up, you know, it wasn't like, oh, Emily didn't show up again. It was like, something must be really wrong. I should call her. (laughs) Right. So, you know, if I, if I didn't show up, whether it was physically or mentally or emotionally, you know, the people around me were like, there's something wrong. You know, I, I should support Emily in being here. So, you know, I trained everyone around me to expect me to show up and to call me on it when I didn't. And so, you know, if inspiration, motivation and commitment all failed, I had this incredible support network that, you know, wouldn't let me sleep in or, you know, not be there 100% training. Yeah. Making you you accountable. Exactly. Yeah. And sometimes you need somebody to to hold you up to that. Definitely. Like, like you said, as much as you love your sport, there are things that you just don't (laughs) want to do that are involved in your sport. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Some days, some days you don't feel like going to the gym and, you know, it's, it's, fun to kind of play with how that plays out in life after sport as well. Um, (laughs) Right. Would you like to give us an example? (laughs) (laughs) I would be happy to. Um, So, you know, the, the, the year or so after I retired, I was like, I don't want to go to the gym. I'm over it. And then I realized that that wasn't very fulfilling. And so I signed myself up like kind of blindly for this half Ironman. And I recognized later that it was one of the hardest half Ironman in 
in the country. It was a, um, it was the like Kona qualifier. It was in St. George, you know, the weather's brutal usually and it's super hilly. And so, you know, I, I laughed at myself and then I got a coach cause I realized that I had no idea what I was doing. I'd never swam competitively. You know, I was not a good runner. I could cycle, uh, decently well. Cause I did some road biking when I was, um, when I was an athlete, uh, for aerials. But so I got myself a, a tri coach and, um, yeah. So, I mean, having that motivation of, of a goal again was awesome. I loved the feeling of it. And also it was like the hardest thing I've ever done. Yeah. <laughs> the hardest thing I've ever done. We're, we're those quick twitch athletes. We don't have that cardiovascular ability. Everybody tells us, no. oh, you should do like Ironmans. You should do a marathon. I'm like, are you kidding me? I can't run around the block. Like that is not my gift. Well, and then the injuries. Yeah, exactly. Right. So then the injuries are like, oh, well, you know, I can't run today. So what am I going to do instead of that? Anyways, um, you know, point being, thankfully, I did have, you know, that structure in place of like, wow, this is really hard. I'm going to get a coach. Right. And then when you have your coach showing up at the pool at 5 a.m., you got to show up. Right. Or else yeah. he's going to be not impressed. Um, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I, I, I definitely I needed a lot of support in doing that half Ironman, the St. George half Ironman. And when I did it, I was incredibly proud of myself. Um, I crossed the finish line. I started crying. And then um, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> I was just going to say, did you just check the box? And you're like, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> I checked the box. And so now, you know, I'm, I'm four months postpartum and I'm like, all right, what's next? So it's time for me to sign up for something next. It's going to be a cycling goal this time, I think, because it's, you know, that's a little bit easier on the body to come back, but it's something that'll keep me, it'll keep me in the game. So having a goal for sure is something that makes a huge difference for me. Oh yeah. And you can, and you can get the little baby seat, you know, or the trailer on your bike and, and pull little Charlie around. So it'll be like a little extra weight for you too, you know, a little resistance training. <laughs> yeah. And he loves watching me on the Peloton. So, ah, there, you go. <laughs> so there we go. Don't even have to leave home. Nice. Nope. <laughs> So, okay. Tell us about you've, you've come back and I know you talked about before, um, you kind of confronted the risk of like, this could happen again, but I'm doing this anyway. You're coming in, you qualify for the 2006 Olympics. So you make the Olympic team again. I have to ask, was it in the back of your head? Like, am I going to get hurt before opening ceremonies? Yeah, it was, it was in the back of my head. And you know, I had the opportunity to skip the Lake Placid World Cup, um, which always comes right before the Olympics and which was where I got hurt four years earlier. And I thought about it, you know, I def it crossed my mind and, you know, I, I just, I sat back, I thought about it and I chose to go anywhere anyways. And once, you know, it's, it's all about choice, right? Like once you make that choice, then again, like you don't give yourself permission to second guess it. Right. So if you choose in, you just go forward, you know, with with all of the passion and all of the heart that you have. And so I chose to go to the Lake Placid World Cup and I placed fine. It wasn't, you know, my best finish in, in a World Cup ever. I think I got seventh or something. But, you know, I went there and I felt really proud of myself for getting through that. And, you know, when I when I finished that competition and training block before the Torino Games, my heart was very full and I knew that I was going to get the chance to actually participate. And so walking into those opening ceremonies with my teammates, with, uh, you know, with Speedy, who we talked about earlier and Jana, who's still one of my best friends, you know, walking in with the two of them was the coolest experience ever. I mean, you know, walking into an opening ceremonies, the sound is deafening and, you know, the, 
the adrenaline is so cool. And, you know, I actually, I can't imagine how it's going to be this time. I've been thinking about, you know, this coming Friday and, and how it's going to be for everybody without spectators there. But regardless of who's there watching, you know that you've accomplished something that you set out to do so many years earlier and it's an incredible feeling. So I know for these guys going into Tokyo, it might feel a little bit different, but the pride of being there and representing your country is incredible and, and they'll get the chance to feel that as well. Oh, definitely. Um, the competition didn't go quite as well as I wanted to. And, it, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. Um, you know, obviously you get there and you expect to perform your best. And when it doesn't happen, it's kind of devastating. So I went into uh, my first Olympic qualifying jump. And uh, when I landed, my feet started going apart. I got caught like kind of by a snow snake is what we call it. And I ended up you know, sliding down the Olympic landing hill on my stomach. And oh, it was so sad. I sat at the bottom with my head in my hands and I was like, oh, I can't believe that was my Olympic debut. And then I got up and I looked around and my whole family who had traveled to Italy was, you know, right at the front of the fence because they had been there for 10 hours staking out the perfect spot. And they were all cheering like I had just won a gold medal. And my conversations with them later were like, well, of course we're proud of you. Like, yeah, we know you crashed, but uh, you just, you know, you just accomplished what you set out to do 14 years ago. So it was, it was a cool feeling. Anyways, it was an incredible experience. And, you know, I knew what I had to work on for the next games coming up because I wasn't done. (laughs) And thankfully I got to go to two more games after that. And then one as a coach as well. So it was pretty cool. Well, I love to, well, Two years after Torino 2, you won your first World Cup in front of like 30,000 people or something in (laughs) Moscow, right? Now, what I want to hear all about that because that sounds like quite the event. It was awesome. It's actually Rob's favorite story. Um, So, yes, so I went to Moscow for our first event in Russia. We had never had, well, first event in Moscow. We had never had a downtown event before. And so they built this really cool scaffolding site. And when we got there, it was the most terrifying thing I'd ever seen. (laughs) Like putting an event in downtown Moscow on scaffolding. Oh my gosh. And the wind was blowing and, you know, the mats along the side weren't perfectly secure. And I went up to my coach and I said, cool, uh, I'm not comfortable and I am not competing at this event. (laughs) And he, you know, you can't force someone to do something. So he said, okay. Um, why don't you watch today and we'll talk tomorrow. So I hung out and I watched and I, you know, I, I determined whether I thought it was safe or not. And I gave my feedback on the venue and I said, you know, I think you need to tie down these mats so that someone doesn't fall to their death. And I think, you know, if we do all of those things, like maybe I'll jump tomorrow. And I came out the next day and I took a couple jumps and, uh, you know, it was still super scary, but I was like, okay, I can handle this. And then the next comp day, I was able to just totally focus on the jump in front of me, not see the city around me or the, you know, the, the stories high scaffolding. And I had two awesome jumps and in front of, you know, 30,000 Russians, including Vladimir Putin, won my first world cup. So it was the coolest thing. It was so much fun. Um, and yeah, like I, I just, I knew that if I were capable of winning that World Cup, that, you know, I was capable of anything. Oh, man, that is so cool. So then from there, going into 2010, you made your second Olympic team for Vancouver. So how did that compare to your first Olympic experience? Oh, it was so fun. I mean, being in Vancouver, it felt like home. Um, So many people were able to come up and experience that with me. And it was awesome. So I made the Olympic final on that one, which was incredible. It was such a fun, such a fun experience. It was my favorite games, um, for sure. I I loved being in, in the city and having my whole family there. 
I finished um, in the top 10 there and it was an incredible experience. I loved it. It was so much fun. And then I announced my retirement. Oh, okay. I was going to ask, like, did you know you were going to continue on? Okay. So this just answers my question. I I was exhausted, you know, I mean, coming. Yeah. Well, so wait, 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 back up, back up. Did you announce your retirement like before you competed or like right after you finished? I think it was right after I finished, you know, I, I kind of expected to be done after 2010. And then after I finished, I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm so, and, and you know, that feeling like after any big push, whether it's an Olympic games or a Paralympic games or, you know, a U.S. national championships or whatever it is that that's, that's that pinnacle that you've been working towards for so long. I was smoked. I couldn't, I didn't think I could do four more years. So I told my coach I was retiring and then we got a new coach and this new coach was, you know, someone that I had really wanted to work with for a very long time. And we had a couple conversations and he said, I am positive that I can get you from where you are right now to where you want to be. You know, I knew that I could still improve. And so I committed to go for four more years. I had a couple conversations with the people closest to me. And most of them said, my recommendation is that you retire. And, you know, I took all of that into account. And then I said, all right, here we go. Four more years. And <laughs> so, so wait, I have to ask you, since I've been through this a handful of times. <laughs> okay. So people around you are telling you, you should probably retire, but you're deciding <laughs> and you've got a coach saying, Hey, I can get you even farther. But like, what do you weigh in your mind to give you that decision to keep going? Like what, what helped you make that decision? You know, the first thing was assessing my injuries. Um, so one thing that I said, uh, you know, I had I had a um, herniated disc in in L five S one, so my lower back, and that had been giving me a lot of problems. I had a um, a uh, labrum and rotator cuff injury that needed surgery, and I was like, ah, I don't really want to have surgery. And so I, <laughs> I kind of said to myself, All right, if I can strengthen this shoulder, and I can. I can strengthen my back enough that I no longer need to do, you know, the treatment that w- that I was doing, which was injections at the time. Then I want to go for four more years, and so I did. A, I did some rehab on both of those injuries, and I got to the point where I felt like I could make it four more years without having to do any significant intervention, and that it was safe for my body. You know, I only have one body, right? So I really just didn't want to. I didn't want to get it to the point where I wasn't going to be able to have a productive life afterwards or a, um, you know, one in which I was happy and healthy and not in pain all the time, which I can proudly say, yes, sometimes I'm in pain, but I'm not in pain all the time, (laughs) which is wonderful. So that was one thing I assessed. You know, I also assessed where I wanted to go next. So, you know, with, with, uh, Speedy passing away, because that happened right after Vancouver, right? Happened right after Vancouver. Yeah. So the thought of that of that process of, you know, going through that transition of becoming, you know, being an athlete and then going into the real world, I really, I assessed that as well. So what do I want to do afterwards? How can I set myself up to transition well also? So those two things were um, things that I assessed. And then, you know, I just, I thought about whether I was having fun, whether I thought I could continue to improve and all of those things checked off. And so I, I, dove in for lack of a better term and, you know, committed to going four more years. And, and really for me, it was incredibly important that no stone was left unturned during those four years, because I knew that I had an awesome life outside of sport. And so choosing in was um, something that I could do without feeling like I had to, if that makes sense. You know, it wasn't like a default of like, well, I don't have anything else to do. It was really a choice to come back to something that I love and something that 
I felt like I could continue getting better at. And, you know, I got up to second in the world going into Sochi and I absolutely improved my jumping. I did some skills that I, you know, that I hadn't done previously. And, um, you know, I'm really proud of those four years that I put in leading up into Sochi. Uh, There was literally no stone left unturned. There's nothing I would have done differently going into the Sochi games. I love that. So what, what exactly would you say, were were there some things that were radically different that you were doing or what, what did you change to leave no stone unturned? Like what things were you adding in or doing differently? It was nothing radical, but it was, it was just, it was putting sport first. And that's a challenge, right? Because (sighs) there's so many other things in the world. And, (laughs) you know, um, obviously family was, I shouldn't say that family was first, but like putting sport first, as far as everything else on, um, on my radar. And so it was just, it was a daily choice. It was a choice of showing up and showing up a hundred percent, no matter what, no matter what my mood was, no matter what was going on around me, that was the biggest thing. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, beginning of the day and the end of the day, knowing exactly what I wanted to accomplish and then debriefing exactly what I did accomplish so that I knew what I needed to change the next day in order to perform even better. So it was a long warm up, it was a long recovery, and it was, it was very introspective during those whole four years. Um, and it sounds like very much like this daily commitment to like daily if commitment. you're yeah, yeah analyzing that much and re- really diving deep into that. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, my friends used to like joke that if they wanted to have dinner with me, it had to start at like 4.30 in the afternoon because I go to bed at eight o'clock. You know, it's just, it was just a, like a literal no stone left unturned, um, like total commitment to making sure that I walked away from the sport proud, no matter, no matter what happened. And so I went into Sochi knowing that I had done everything, um, that I had done, you know, I had, I had checked every box and, you know, I, I finished eighth place there, which the result honestly was disappointing. But, you know, when I got to the bottom of the hill, my mental strength coach slash, slash sports psychologist is, is a close friend of mine. And I, I found her like pretty quick after I skied out of the, the mixed zone, which is um, where you do all your interviews and such. And she gave me a big hug and she said, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I actually am. And she kind of held me back and looked, looked into my eyes and she said, oh, you are okay. And I was like, yeah, I'm great. Honestly, like there's nothing I would have changed and I put it all on the line and that's all you can ask for. So, you know, for me, the way that I did it was, was the way that I wanted to do it. You know, I had, I had a chance to both train 100%, but also, you know, do some work that I was proud of as well outside of, outside of sport, um, you know, with the nonprofits that I work with and, you know, contributing and being a part of my community as well. And I just felt really proud of, of how I did things. Ah, that's, that's such a good way to finish. Like, like you said, no matter the result, like just knowing that you did everything in your power and you did it in a good way, like that, that does feel very good. I agree. So what, what was that actual transition out of sport? Like, Oh, it was actually kind of funny. Um, the day I finished competing, I went into like full on what's next mode. (laughs) And when I look back, I'm a little bit like, okay, I mean, maybe I could have taken like a week off or something and like just relaxed a little bit, but I was like, okay, I got this. What's next. And so I went on this like countrywide tour where I basically just met up with everybody who I respected and admired. And I asked them, you know, what do you love about what you're doing? And, um, you know, all of those types of questions. And I ended up in an awesome job with Skull Candy that I loved. Um, it was it was 
the coolest thing. I was, I built out a high performance lab for them. I was studying how music affects performance and my boss was incredible and it was so much fun. So I did that for two years and I learned a lot about, you know, life after sport and about how a publicly held company works. So two years into working for Skull Candy, um, my coach who I had talked about earlier that coached me from Vancouver to Sochi reached out and said they had lost a coach a year and a half before the Olympics. And they really needed someone who could, you know, really connect with the team and knew how things were done and, um, you know, who they knew were really committed to the team being successful to come and coach the team going into uh, the 2018 Olympic Games uh, in Pyeongchang. And so I agreed to do that and I left Skull Candy and I went back into coaching, which was incredibly rewarding. You know, I wasn't sure whether I would get the same joy out of, you know, watching, you know, watching the athletes that I was coaching be successful as I did as an athlete myself. But, you know, watching those guys reach their dreams was the coolest thing ever. And it was also really challenging because as an athlete, you go in and you either, you know, do well or you don't do well. And then you deal with that and you move on as a coach, you know, on any given day, you can have someone win a world cup or win world championships. And then another athlete, you know, either get injured or, you know, not quite, live up to the potential that they knew that they had. So it's emotional roller coaster for sure, but it was an incredible experience and I I loved coaching. And then after that, I decided that I had been traveling the world for about 20 years and I was ready to be home for a little bit. <laughs> and so I took a job with a nonprofit that I worked with when I was an athlete um, called Classroom Champions, which I loved. I loved being a part of Classroom Champions when I was an athlete. And so I took a job as the athlete mentor manager for Classroom Champions. And now I train athletes to be mentors for kids, grades K through eight. And we teach kids um, social emotional learning skills like perseverance and goal setting and how to manage big emotions and you know, for me, it's this opportunity to show athletes that they're more than just athletes and to give them a side of themselves that, um, that is so important to develop as an athlete. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and that opportunity to give back. And so I love my job with classroom champions. It's so much fun. Um, I get to work with summer athletes, winter athletes, and, uh, get a chance to give back to kids, um, across North America, uh, and globally. Now we're starting to grow globally as well. So it's awesome. That's cool. How do people like find or become a part of classroom champions? Yeah. So, um, it's just classroomchampions.org is the website and you can find my contact info right on the website there. If you're interested in becoming a mentor, reach out and we can get you an application and get you onboarded and get you rolling. Um, if you're a teacher and you're interested in having an athlete mentor in your classroom, you can also reach out there at classroomchampions.org. And it's such a cool program. I mean, I, I built friendships with some of these teachers um, over the years. I got to visit my classrooms in person after Sochi. And it was just, it was a really cool way to connect with, with kids uh, for myself across the U.S. And it was awesome. It was so rewarding. I loved it. That's so cool. Like, and what ages participate in this? Is it mostly high school or is it younger as well? It's mostly younger. So we go kindergarten through eighth grade. Oh, wow. Yeah, and, you know, we're looking to, to develop into high school as well. But we just know that, that kids develop those social emotional learning skills during that time. And so we focus on that time right now. And so as an athlete, you get a couple classrooms and uh, you, you, you basically talk to them about all these different lessons and we give you a great structure for doing so. I think as athletes, we really want to give back, but sometimes we don't know exactly how to do so. And so giving these athletes um, a structure to do so and 
you know, some talking points around, you know, how to talk about how to manage big emotions, but then giving the athletes the opportunity to talk about what works for them in sport. It's great for them. Um, you know, it gives them a chance to think about it. And a lot of the athletes say that their students help them as much as they help their students. So it's, it's fun to watch. That's so cool. Oh my gosh. I love that so much. Uh, Emily, thank you so much for, for joining us today, dropping some amazing truth bombs, some great resources and tools and inspiring us to keep going. And really, like you said, give it like a hundred percent, uh, no matter what, like to be in there totally committed and knowing that your goals and your dreams are worth the risk. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for inspiring all of us with what you've done in your career as well. I've loved watching you dive and watching everything that you've done over the past couple of years. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests, and it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.